Well, praise God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's uh, continue our worship now as we turn in our Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of John. So we are going to be in Acts 21 and 22 today, but for the scripture reading, I want to read from John 15, and I want to read from verses 18 through 20. So John 15, if you turn there, 18 to 20, and then we'll go through the whole of 22 and a little bit of 21, but if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 15, verses 18 through 20. This is God's word. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in this time together. We pray that you would... Uh, Speak to our hearts through your text, that you would change our hearts through your text. Uh, Conform us, Lord, into the image of your Son for your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. What do you think of when you hear that word slave? What immediately pops into your mind when you hear the word slave? It may vary from person to person, of course, but if you're like most in this day and age, the first thought that may come to mind when considering the word slave or thinking about the topic of slavery may not be a pleasant one, especially if you've ever been exposed to the horrific realities of the not-so-distant past transatlantic slave trade that took place right here in the good old U.S. of A., Uh, Among other places, a number of years ago, I read an autobiography of Frederick Douglass where he talked about some of the detestable practices that he personally witnessed and experienced in the uh, early to mid-1800s Baltimore, Maryland. Black babies were being uh, taken from their enslaved parents, ripped from the hands of their mothers at one year old, forced to grow up in an environment where little children would be forced to fight for the slop that was poured in the pig troughs where only the strong survived. I remember studying the degradation and dehumanization experienced by men and women created in the image of God for the benefit of other men and women created in the image of God, primarily based upon that which obviously separated the two, the pigmentation of the skin which they were created in. It's said that some six to seven million enslaved human beings were imported to the New World during the 18th century alone, depriving the African continent of some of its healthiest and ablest men and women. It was a horrendous era in human history, and it was a clear manifestation and an example of the total and absolute depravity of mankind. I would say it's fair to say something similar popped into many of the minds in this place when you heard the word slave. But any student of the scripture, any good Berean, will know that this type of language is really prevalent throughout the Old and New Testaments, and it's key 
It's of uttermost importance in the life of every believer to be able to distinguish what the Bible says about slaves and slavery and our personal experiences and, or history of life in a corrupted and cursed nation. We have to let our, <clears throat> the text shape our reality and our experience. We can't let our realities and experience shape the text and the meaning of the text, right? In every situation, remember, Truth is not subjective. There is no such thing as subjective truth. There's only truth. Well, here's a great example. In the New Testament alone, we see the word for slave or doulos some 130 times, one whose life is subjected to another's will. That's a slave. A doulos is not a free man. Uh, Interestingly, then, when you consider that, how most often, and in most English translations, in fact, all but two that I know of, the word slave is substituted for servant or bondservant. You may have noticed that in your own Bibles as we read John 15. What this means is the translators have sought to soften the language based on uh, horrific experiences like those that Douglas and so many others had Uh, experience before him, but in the process, they have at best diminished both the meaning and message of the word seeks to communicate, or at worst, nullified its meaning and message altogether. Nobody should have to be subjected to the atrocities that Douglas and so many other human beings were forced to experience in the slave trade of the 18th century. The Bible wouldn't condone it, nor should any believer in Christ, but we can't let human atrocities skew our view as to what the Scriptures, and specifically the New Testament, has to say with regard to what it means to be a slave in the theological sense. Paul, for example, the one whom we've considered together for the past couple of months, following him on his journeys, hearing his teachings, seeing the tremendous impact the gospel had on the whole world through his ministry— called himself repeatedly a slave. Not a servant, not a bond servant, but a slave. What's the difference? <clears throat> well, this is obvious, says John MacArthur, who has a whole book and several wonderful sermons on the topic. He says, servants were hired to work for wages. Servants were hired to work for wages and they could quit. They were paid a wage for a job, but slaves were owned. They could not quit. He says the word doulos in the Greek should never be translated anything but slave. Never. There are six different words for servant or bondservant, and none of them capture the meaning of that word doulos. Yet, the NIV and the KJV and the NKJV and the ESV, and the, they all translate that text that we read this morning and most other texts where doulos is used as bondservants. As bondservants, unless, of course, it's talking about a literal slave, but that's not what Paul says. Paul says in Romans 1, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 4, Galatians 1, Ephesians 6, Philippians 1, 2 Timothy, and Titus, to name a few, he said, I am a slave. I belong to another. I am the possession of. I am owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my master, and I am his slave. Peter will say the same. So will James, Jude, John. He also says if you are a true believer in Christ, if you are truly regenerated, if 
You have truly been converted, not to American evangelicalism or easy believism's version of Jesus, but if you have been born again, forgiven, saved, delivered, declared to be just and righteous in the sight of a holy God, then you are a slave to Christ. You too are a slave to Christ. You are owned by Christ. Why? Because you have been bought with a price. Because he purchased you with his own blood. Because you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Therefore, every true Christian is truly a slave of Christ. And if the great apostle wasn't offended by this, if he wasn't ashamed of this, then why should any of us be? I couldn't help but see this in our text this morning in Acts chapter 22. And really, in the entire life of the Apostle Paul, since uh, Acts chapter 9, it's not just lip service for Paul, okay? This is not just nominalism. He lived this out, and we ought to follow his example. If you go back to Acts 21, go ahead and turn there, uh, you'll notice that Luke begins another lengthy narrative account as we Meet up with Paul, now in chains after having been arrested by a Roman, co- uh, Roman commander, arrested by this commander, really rescued by this commander and his men after being beaten almost to death by a bloodthirsty mob made up of his own brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, Jews who sought to satiate their lust for blood by demonstrating their religious zeal, longing to rid the world of this man who was accused of forsaking Moses and Uh, turning devout men and women and their children away from the law, defiling the temple, hating his own people. All false accusations, by the way, all slander. Nevertheless, here he sits in the barracks of this Roman commander, bloodied and beaten, yet still in faithful service to his master. Look at verse 37 of the 21st chapter. Remember, Paul said to the commander, can I say something to you? And the commander says, wait, do you know Greek? So you're not just some Jew, Uh, then you must be that notorious Egyptian who raised up all these assassins who would come into the temple and other public places, and they'd shank people in the back in broad daylight. Remember those guys? Paul says, no, 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 that's not me. I'm Jewish, though I'm originally from Tarsus and Cilicia, no insignificant city. What he's saying there is, listen, I'm no slouch. Okay, I'm no rabble rouser. I'm from the big city, one of the top three cities in the Roman Empire during that time, uh, in fact, in, in terms of clout and trade, as well as philosophical contributions from uh, throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, it was known as the cultural center of Hellenism and Stoic philosophy. Oh yeah, I'm not from the sticks, is what he's saying, okay? I'm a civilized man. I'm a cultured man. Now, This is really solidified in verse 39 where he says, I beg you, I implore you, let me speak to these people. These people? What people? You mean the people who were just tearing you apart limb from limb? The people who were were screaming at the top of their lungs, away with him, away with him, not just from the temple, but as we'll see from the face of the earth? The ones that my guys had to literally drag you away from? Those people? Paul says, yeah, those people. Let me speak to those people. Luke says in verse 40, this commander, whose name is Claudius Lysias, we'll find out next chapter, gives him permission. He says, yeah, go ahead. Maybe then I can find out exactly who you are. 
So in verse 40, Paul makes his first of six defenses that we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. There was a great hush. He spoke to them in the Hebrew language, not necessarily Hebrew, by the way. Most scholars agreed this was the preferred language of the Jews at the time, which is Aramaic. He motions with his hand. This whole rabid crowd goes silent as he says, men, brothers, fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. He's talking to men, brothers, and fathers, the leaders of society, the leaders of the temple, and even the leaders in the home. Hear my defense. Now Luke says, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they were even quieter. After this whole city was in chaos, this whole city was stirred up, all the confusion, now dead silence. And here's what he said. He said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you are all today. Quick, note what he's doing here. You see what he's doing here? Very shrewd, very clever of Paul. He's appealing to what they have in common. A Jew brought up in this city, according to the law of our fathers, zealous for our God. Which God? The God of Israel, of course. So you see how he begins his defense? He softens them up a bit. You know, he, 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 he relates to them, softens them up. I can understand the outrage, he says. I get it. In fact, I was just like you. Notice he's not afraid to drop some big names in in the process here. He's not above name dropping here. Uh, First of all, Gamaliel. Uh, A couple years ago, we looked at Acts chapter 5, where Luke Luke introduced us to Gamaliel. Luke said he was a Pharisee, a set-apart one, a teacher of the law, who was respected and held in honor by all the people. He came from a line of men who were admired and held in high regard by all the people, as he was the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel. So admired in, that in later rabbinical writings, it was said that when Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder died, the glory of the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died. That's a pretty good compliment for a Pharisee, right? So here Paul says, listen, that was my teacher, That that was uh, my rabbi. He trained me according to the strictness of the law. He could have said, that's my training. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. How about you? But he didn't in this setting. I would have liked to see that, but he didn't that we know of. Instead, he goes on to drop even more names. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prisons. There's also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. Now, you got to be thinking, some of the folks in this crowd right now, especially those who are from out of town, might be thinking, oh man, what have we done here? Who is this guy? He's got letters from the high priest. He knows Gamaliel. We're in big trouble. Verse 5, he says, from them I also received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there uh, to, uh, (coughs) excuse me, bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. That means not only was I a cultured man, I was a committed man. Okay, point two. I was a staunch defender of the Torah, the temple, Pharisaic Judaism of both our place and our nation. You think you're zealous for the law? He says, that was my occupation. 
That's what I did. That's who I was. Every fiber of my being was devoted to Judaism and its cause. You think you're zealous beating me up here a thousand to one? Wow. Well, I went into people's houses. I dragged husbands out in front of their wives and kids. I took women from their families. I threw them in jail. I presided over their beatings and executions. You see, I was just like you. I was just like you in your zeal for the law, and more so. But, and that's one of the biggest buts in the Bible right there. I was just like you, but, but it happened that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Those who were with me, they beheld the light to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Now we see this in uh, Acts 9, Acts 26, and right here in Acts 22. Altogether, we see a complete testimony of this light, the Shekinah glory of God that shone all around him. How bright was this glory? Well, he says it was brighter than the noonday sun. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to go outside and look at the sun for more than a couple seconds. You look right into it. It doesn't last for a couple seconds. You'll do damage to your eyes. It'll hurt your eyes. You've got to look away. You've got to divert your eyes somehow. Paul says this light was brighter than that. And he does so to demonstrate that it was more radiant than anything that we are accustomed to here in life on this earth. He heard a voice. The others heard this voice too, but they didn't understand it. Why not? Well, because the voice wasn't for them. It was just for Paul. It's just for Paul. Paul, who responded, as he notes in verse 10, what should I do, Lord? Now, remember, he had been persecuting Jesus' followers up to this point on his way to Damascus to uh, lock them up, cut them down, snuff them out if necessary, all for even uttering the name of Jesus. But now, what should I do, Lord? This word kyrios here, denoting one in authority, means a sovereign, a ruler, a master. And don't forget, he's giving this testimony to a crowd full of religious zealots here, Jewish zealots. He's calling Jesus of Nazareth Lord, even if it's just in a formal sense, a title of respect. But you can imagine the response of these people. Jesus? What? Jesus of Nazareth, the guy they killed all those years back? Oh, my word. He's dead. Jesus of Nazareth, you've got to be kidding me, Paul. You've, you've lost it here. What are you talking about? But he says, no, no, no. Watch this. The Lord said to me, rise up. Go into Damascus. There you'll be told of all that has been determined for you to do. But since I could not see because of the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who are with me, I came into Damascus. Now, a certain man named Ananias, this man was a devout man by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Note, he doesn't mention that, mention that Ananias was a Christ follower here. He's talking to Jews. Ananias, a devout Jew, spoken well of by all the Jews, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very hour, I re- regained my sight and saw him. And this devout Jew, Ananias, said, the God of our our fathers, 
has appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one. That's Jesus, the just one, by the way, the only just one. And to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Rise up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, before the assembly of God folks or the church of Christ folks get too excited here, uh, this doesn't indicate that water baptism was washing the sins away, but rather the faith that precedes it will wash them away. As one theologian said, this means that Paul will call on Jesus' name, an expression pointing to salvation. Such a faith invocation of God washes away sin with the cleansing symbolized symbolized in water baptism. In other words, uh, the sins are washed away at the moment of faith, which always precedes the symbolic act of baptism, which comes from the hands of another later in the process. We don't self-baptize. That'd be kind of a little difficult. Uh, but there's something else that we must emphasize here, and I know some people won't like it. Some people won't like me for it. That's okay. That's all right. You can get in line. Uh, I want you to notice again who it is that is initiating everything here, okay? How could this man go from being the hunter to the hunted, from predator to prey, from persecutor throughout Jerusalem and up to Damascus to persecuted right here outside of the temple walls? How could he go from soldier to slave? How could he go from hater of the will of God and the Christ of God, willing to persecute this way to death, to sacrificing his personal safety, his physical well-being, even his very life that his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, might know such a great salvation? How? How does this happen to a person? How can such a drastic and dramatic change take place in the heart of a man like Saul of Tarsus, Paul, or any of us here today in our natural sinful condition? How does this happen? I have to know. How, Paul? Answer, all in the same way. Sure, maybe not the same circumstances, but by the same means, by God's sovereign choice alone. God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign electing choice. In other words, he chose Paul, not the other way around. And he chose us, if we're in Christ, not the other way around. Paul knew this better than anybody. We should always give thanks for you, uh, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 2 Thessalonians. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 2 Timothy 2. He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Titus 3. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had yet not yet done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Romans 9. That's just a small sample size. 
of, of similar texts which are abundant in the Scriptures. This was just from Paul, by the way. God chooses. God draws. God saves. God appoints. And that's true of all of us who are saved. Jesus said the very same thing, right? In John's Gospel, just the sixth chapter, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. All the Father gives to me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse, uh, chapter 13, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Chapter 15, you did not choose me. I chose you. One preacher said, how free will can be reconciled with you did not choose me is never explained by those who believe in free will. John 15, 19, we read this morning, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you because I chose you. Here's Paul. He's on his way to Damascus. He's trotting down this road with papers from the high priest himself ready to imprison and kill God's elect. Boom. Light shines all around him. He falls down blind. He talks to the living, risen, triumphant Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, go to this place where you will be told of all that has been what? Determined for you to do predetermined for you to do. Jesus calls Ananias, says, Ananias, get over there, see Saul of Tarsus. Ananias says, whoa, are you kidding me? I've heard of Saul. I don't want to pay this guy a visit. The Lord says, do it, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, that's familiar language there. I'm not only ready to be bound, but to die For who? For what? For the name of the Lord Jesus. As always, everything is going according to plan here. Okay? Rest in this, my brothers and sisters. Rest in the fact that our sovereign God is in absolute control of everything. He reigns supreme. Paul was chosen He was elected for salvation, not just in some uh, divine reaction to the circumstances in Palestine at that place and time, but he was sovereignly predestined for salvation from before the very foundations of the earth. This just happens to be the testimony of when Paul's regeneration took place. But he was chosen before the earth was created. And that's true of all of us. Those aren't my words. Uh, those are his words. Those are, those are the Holy Spirit's words. Those aren't my words. Those aren't John Calvin's word. But because they're his words, they're our words too. And uh, whether people like it or not, God chose Paul. And, and God chose you if you're truly in Christ this morning. 
He chose you. He regenerated our hearts through the power of his spirit according to his own purpose and for his own glory. He then, as the author and perfecter of our faith, gave us the faith to believe, whereby we are justified in the sight of a holy God, declared to be righteous in his sight. Salvation is all of God. Now, we respond, of course. We have to actively believe, but may we never forget that even in our believing, even our believing is a gift from God. Okay, it's no way manufactured or developed or conjured up within ourselves. It can't be, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. Make no mistake, God didn't save Paul because he was such a cultured man, okay? Or because he spoke Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, or because he was so religious. Paul will be the first to tell you, and did tell you, that he was the chief of sinners. He counted all those worldly ventures and accolades as rubbish, garbage, for the sake of knowing Christ. Isn't that something? Why did God choose to save me? I don't know. I don't know. Why did God choose to save you if you're truly saved? I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, uh, I've said it a number of times here, I believe, Spurgeon says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. Now, I'm sure he chose me from before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. Hearty amen there. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. He also said, Our opponents say, Salvation belongs to the free will of man. If not to man's merit, then yet at least to man's will. But we hold and teach that salvation from first to last, in every iota of it, belongs to the Most High God. It is God that chooses His people. He calls them by His grace. He quickens them by His Spirit and keeps them by His power. Now, I have to reiterate, of course, we still have the responsibility to believe and how divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together. I can't tell you. I can't explain it. I'm not going to pretend I know how. But I refuse to give the latter more credence than the former. I do know that you have to respond to the gospel call. And you will respond to the gospel call in one way or another. But again, I'm here to tell you, if you have true and saving faith, if you truly believe, then this was a work of that same special, divinely initiated, regenerating work of grace in your heart. And it's amazing grace. Amen? That's right. That's what, in fact, that's what makes his grace so amazing. That's why we sing about it. He chose us in spite of ourselves. So don't be offended at this truth. And don't let people convince you or try to convince you to be offended at this truth of the sovereignty of God over salvation. Rejoice in it. Uh, uh, glory in the fact that he chose you not based off anything that you did or anything that you did not do, but only by his sovereign electing choice. Okay? Paul goes on. And again, we saw it in chapter 9. We'll see it again in 26. Now we see the shift, though, 
of being chosen to being called, okay? And specifically his post-conversion call, the post-initial saving call. We're not talking about the call in the salvific sense here. But now he tells us of his call to ministry and suffering, okay? Look at verse 17, point four in your outline. Now it happened. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, hurry, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your witness about me. That's about to be a prophetic, uh, uh, that'll prove to be really prophetic here in a moment. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and guarding the garments of those who were slaying him. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. We talked last week about his calling or his commission to go specifically to the uncircumcised men and women. Again, the heathen, the pagan, the dogs. But I want you to look with me at verse 22. This is a profound statement made in verse 22. Remember what the Lord just said. They will not listen to your witness about me. They're not going to listen to you. So here's the call to suffering, okay? There he is. He's in front of this whole crowd. He's talking about Tarsus. He's talking about Jerusalem, Gamaliel, high priests, elders, Ananias, persecuting the way, even mentioning the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They were all ears, right? That silence was maintained throughout that whole crowd the entire time, right up until the moment when he mentions the same way being extended to the Gentiles. And then the animosity comes out. The uh, superiority comes out. The supremacy comes out, right? And the hatred comes out. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You remember they did the same thing to Jesus, right? Back in Luke chapter 4. Now he comes to Nazareth. He goes into a synagogue. He grabs the scroll of Isaiah. He stands up to read it. When he read it, he sat back down. All were speaking well of him. They were marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. But as always, in come the slanders and, and the false accusers of the brethren. Okay? Luke writes uh, that some said, oh man, this is Joseph's son. He's nobody special. That's Mary's son. She's a harlot. He's no prophet. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. Then he told them about Elijah passing up this, a bunch of Jewish widows in and, and a famine to go to this Gentile widow and some Jewish lepers who were passed up in Elisha's time for going to a Gentile named Naaman. And the people of Nazareth lost it because they knew what Jesus was saying. He's saying, God, Yahweh, passed up the stubborn apostate religious Jews to deliver the Gentiles, to deliver these dogs. And he's going to do it again if you don't listen to my words. So they got up, drove him out of town, tried to toss him off a cliff. He passed through their midst to go away. This is the same thing happens with Paul here. It's the same thing. I was called to preach salvation to the Gentiles. Reconciliation to God to the Gentiles. Their response would somebody please wipe this guy off the face of the earth? He doesn't deserve to live. Kill him. Verse 23. They were crying out, throwing off their garments, tossing dust into the air. 
The commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by flogging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in that way. So obviously this commander doesn't know Aramaic. He just sees this response and he says, okay, I got to get this guy out of here. I got to go back to the barracks where I'm going to have some of my men flog him. Now this could very well be the same place that they flogged Jesus Christ, okay? A stump or a stone sat in the middle of an open area. The, the prisoner's hands were wrapped around it in a hugging fashion, they were, or, or they were tied together, cuffed at the top here. Here in verse 25, it says they were going to stretch Paul out. They stretch him out so they can inflict maximum damage. Then comes the flagrum. I got this off the internet. You can get anything off the internet. So this is a Roman flagrum. Now, this was a whip that was used in those times that typically either had metals, like this one has metal with nails coming out of it, or they would have bone fragments, or they would have glass, uh, all with the same purpose, okay? As they whip down, they want these, these shards or these nails to pierce the skin and then rip the skin off from the bones as they pull it back out, Okay? John Fox said, uh, or Fox said, some of the martyrs were scourged until their tendons and veins lay bare. After suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths, either by the pain that was afflicted, inflicted upon them, or the infection that came afterwards. Because you were basically walking around like an open sore. Imagine the pain of being hit with this thing, and you stretch out back. Imagine the, what it takes to hit somebody with one of those things. You've got to be a real sicko. But that's what uh, they were threatening Paul with, all to extract information because the commander didn't know Aramaic. All these people are about to have a riot. He's over the temple security. So it's his uh, tail on the line. Here we have Paul. He's about ready to get hit by this thing repeatedly. But look at verse 25. When they stretched him out with leather straps, Paul said to a centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reporter, said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The Valerian laws prohibited beating a Roman citizen in this matter. The Julian laws... uh, allowed an appeal to Rome. Any officer who violated these rights would be guilty of a crime and may even be punished by death himself. So the centurion had to make absolutely sure what he commanded to do. He was commanded to do was legal. Verse 27, the commander came to Paul and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? Paul says, yes. Now, it would have done no good for Paul to lie about, about it at this point. If he was found out to be lying about his citizenship, they would have killed him like that. So whether Paul showed Claudius Lysias his diploma or just took his word for it, we don't know. Uh, What we do know is that he told Paul in verse 28, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. In other words, he probably bribed somebody for it. But Paul said, I was born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately withdrew from from him. And the commander also was afraid when he learned that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. That's how serious this was here. This guy was a commander of a Roman army. He was over 
10 centurions. He was over 1,000 people, 1,000 soldiers on, on horseback, many of them. Now he's terrified, he's petrified for having bound Paul for scourging here. And Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He waited until the very last second. Notice, when no Jews were around. Okay? To the mob, he was just like them, zealous for the law, trained by Gamaliel, sent by the high priest himself. But to the Romans, he was a Roman, deserving of a fair trial, not to be bound beforehand, certainly not scourged with one of these. You can't do that to a Roman citizen. Are you kidding me? Next week, he'll be before the Sanhedrin, and he's a Jew again, okay? As he appeals to the Pharisees, but never, never does he forsake his Lord. He's never ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a slave is not greater than his master. He wasn't ashamed to be owned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because he knows that his master suffered in the same manner, even, even worse. And he suffered for Paul's sin, condemned by his people, falsely accused, having a murderer, Barabbas, spared instead of him, struck, spit upon, whipped, scourged with the same flagrum, clothed in a purple robe, fitted with a crown of thorns, hung to a Roman cross, suffocating under the weight of his own body. His head is down, he's breathing his last, separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity so that all who would believe in him and call upon his name would never have to be. Again, I ask, why should Paul or Peter or James or John or any of us think that we're going to get it any easier? Physically speaking, says who? A slave is not greater than their master, okay? Luke says in verse 30, on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to come together brought Paul down, set him before them. Again, uh, he's a Jew, and he does it all over again, okay? Unashamedly declaring his testimony as a slave to the sovereign, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise, my brothers and sisters. Lord willing, that's what we'll consider in our time together next week. I just have one quick takeaway before we close, however, and it goes back to every one of Christ's followers giving up their lives as obedient slaves to their masters, okay, forfeiting their supposed temporal freedoms to obtain eternal freedom. The only way this can be true of us is if, like Paul, we have been genuinely converted, okay, changed, turned, rescued out of the slave market of sin and death, rescued from the bondage of our own sin nature and Satan and set free by the gospel of the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, cleansed in the precious life-giving blood of Christ. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, we too must be converted, holy, Okay, not just clean up our lives here and there, not just start doing certain things or stop doing certain things, but be made to be a whole new creature, a new creation, born again. 
because we know in our natural state, in our original state, we were under the just judgment and righteous wrath of a holy God. We deserve his wrath forever in hell. There must be a turning of the entire person. This is what Paul says to the, to the Thessalonians, okay? He says, they turned from idols to serve a true and living God. Now they waited for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues them from the wrath to come. The wrath is coming. Flee from the wrath to come, I would tell you. And now, because we know that he has chosen us, that he has called us, that he has transformed our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts that loves what he loves and hates what he hates, who mourn over our sin and grieve over our sin and hate our sin. As we're continually conformed into the image of the Son, now we can know what a tremendous privilege it is to be called his slave. So we can say with Paul in his introduction to the Romans, his letter to the Romans, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Or James in his epistle. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Peter in his. Simeon, Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Brother of James. To those who are called, beloved, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen. He indicated, by this, uh, he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. John wrote that. What would your greeting say? Let me just ask you. What would your greeting say? Good. I trust that it would be similar. I pray that you would recognize the tremendous honor of being called a slave of Christ. I'll just ask you, do you believe in this good news? Uh, Do you believe the good news of the gospel of grace? Do you believe that you are one of his, that you belong to him? Do you believe that God chose you, that God saved you, that God regenerated your heart? Not because you prayed some prayer or walked some aisle or joined a church or gave money to a church. Not because you bowed your head and raised your hand while the lights were dim so that nobody else could see what you were doing. But because you, he changed your wicked heart. Because he enabled you to believe in his gospel. And he softened your heart. Do you believe? Do you believe that he, by the grace and the power of his Holy Spirit, allows you to carry out your days as a living sacrifice to your Lord and Master? Do you believe that? Is that how you view Jesus Christ? You say, well, how do I know? Well, a pretty good indication is that you long to obey him. Again, people hate this this terminology, even in the church. They don't like to be told this word, obey Christ. Lord, master, slave. But that's what the Bible says. You, you long to obey him. You long to live for him. And like Paul, you would be willing to die for him if necessary. Because you long to be with him. 
Let me ask you, do you long to be with your Lord? Do, do you long to see the face of your Lord, or do you like this place too much? You want to tell him, hold on just a second, okay? I've got things i got to do here. Or do you long, do you, do you long to be with him and see him face to face? Do you long to be with him in a place where he will wipe away every tear, every tear from your eyes, in a place where there will be no, no more death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Do you long for that day? As John says in Revelation 22, there will no longer be any curse. Can you imagine what that will be like? No death, no sin. Do you long for this day? Well, if, if you do, and if you belong to him, this will soon be a reality for you. Because it says in the very next sentence, who will be in glory with him? And look who it is, his slaves. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his slaves will serve him. So if you don't like doing it down here, you're going to have a real hard time for eternity. But I'd say you probably aren't going to be there if you don't like obeying and serving him here. And his slaves will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any light. They will not have need of light, of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord will illumine them. There's that same Shekinah glory that Paul talked about. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. Guess who that is? All of us here reading it today. Are you one of those slaves? Are you one of those? If not, I would implore you by Christ to be reconciled to God this morning, that you would cry out for his mercy, his forgiveness, his amazing grace. Bend your knee to his Christ. Trust in him and him alone for the salvation of your everlasting soul. I beg you, I'm begging you to do so this morning. Then spend an eternity giving praise to the Father through Jesus the Son, giving him all the glory. Great things he has done. Amen? Amen. All right, let's have uh, Paul, or excuse me, Noel. (laughs) Paul, I got Paul on the brain. Have Noel and the music team come up, lead us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the tremendous privilege of opening up your word, your holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word, and being instructed by it. We're so grateful to be your children. We're so grateful to be your slaves, and we long to obey you. So make your will known, continue to make your will known to us in your word and by the strength of your Holy Spirit, allow us to carry out uh, your will in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.